This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. During the holidays, food becomes a focal point for celebration, but while the traditional images of the holiday table may include a roasted ham or turkey as the centrepiece, for many, plant-based food takes centre stage. And in Central Florida, a growing roster of restaurants are offering vegetarian and vegan holiday dining options. I invited chefs Sean Noonan and Hari Pulapaka and restaurant critic Fires Kara to chat about the elevation of plant-based dining. We also talked about how the pandemic has shaken up the typical holiday dining scene. Joining me are Sean Noonan. He's the owner of the Harp and Cork Southern Hospitality Group, which includes Dharma Fine Vittles. Sean, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joined by Hari Pulapaka. He's an associate professor of mathematics at Stetson University. He's also the founder of the Global Cooking School and co-founder and minority owner of Chris Restaurant in Deland. Harry, welcome back. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And Fires Kara is the Orlando Weekly Restaurant Critic. Fires, welcome back to you as well. Great to be here, Matt. So we're into the uh, holiday season now. I guess that kind of technically began around Thanksgiving, which is really a, a, a feast of food, a holiday centered around food, as, as uh, Harry and I have talked about before. Uh, but I think there's probably more scope and and more demand for food and holiday food, particularly that isn't focused on meat. Hari, um, you've been thinking about this. You've been cooking this way for a long time. You have a new uh, uh, cookbook out, in fact. Uh, What's your approach to to holiday food when it comes to catering to vegetarians and, and, and vegans? Thank you, Matthew. So for me, food is food. I don't really think of food as being vegetarian or non-vegetarian. And I feel like maybe that's the point is we can just make food that tastes good. And in this case, food that's plant-based. And if you apply proper cooking techniques and have some sentimentality and some um, sensitivity to it uh, in terms of its influence from all over the world as it relates to good flavor, then one can make delicious food. So that's how I cook food. I just cook food that I think will taste good. And I try not to label my food as being vegetarian or non-vegetarian. I mean, as somebody who knows ingredients can kind of identify what they are. And that's my tip for restaurateurs actually is when they have vegetarian dishes on the menu to kind of not put a big B next to it. Uh, I, I, I I realize the importance of it, but I feel like that sometimes has a detrimental effect on a diner who might be interested otherwise. Mm-hmm. Having said all that, Hari, you, your new cookbook, the title is Dreaming Inspires a Sinfully Vegetarian Odyssey. The V is pretty prominent there. Indeed. Well, I'm talking about restaurant menus where you got one shot, you know, somebody comes in to dine and they're trying to pick a dish from a menu. You know, when somebody buys a book, I mean, I think they want to dig a little deeper into what that book's about. So I feel like that mm-hmm. title needs to be on the cover, but Maybe in the next book won't have that, uh, a more specific title. But I understand what you're saying. But it's more about trying to capture the attention of somebody with a short attention span. People are coming to Crest, though, because they know what's on the menu, right? I mean, it has a reputation and people are like, I want to go to this restaurant because I, I have a, an idea about the kind of food that I'm going to eat. And they know that you, you are, are working on food that isn't just like, you know, a vegetarian afterthought. Oh, we have all these meat dishes Here's like a kind of a a random assortment of vegetables for people who can't eat meat. I agree. And I've tried to do that, Um, you know, but we also get a lot of first time diners who don't really know what to expect. And they've just heard, you know, and they want to give it a shot or they're in the area and they happen to just want to stop by. So I don't always know that the guest knows what they want. In fact, I expect them to be interested in everything on the menu. In fact, that's one of my pet peeves when when I go to the table, which has been a while, uh, and ask, you know, to talk to a, a guest who's just come in and they want always want to ask me, 
so chef what do you recommend and you know i mean it's like what do you what do you think i'm going to recommend i'm going to recommend everything on the menu of course because you know i have nothing to do with it um so yes yeah, so i want them to be interested by everything on the menu and if they're a repeat diner i want them to try something different well let me bring you into this conversation sean so you know people who are going to um, market on south for example they they kind of seek that out because it is one of the one of the places in orlando where you know you're going to get good vegetarian food um and do you, do you also get a lot of kind of first time customers who are like oh i just saw this place and pulled over and decided to stop in here and not quite sure what i'm in for so well well one you chef probably knocks it out of the park with proper ingredients and proper technique food is just food and you know you you can you prepare these dishes with more your soul than with the intention of uh, vegetarianism under the mind. I just want to prepare my food that way. That's that's sort of where my niche is. That's sort of where my dharma has driven me. So with when customers come in, yeah, our entire restaurant is completely one hundred percent plant based. But we try to break that mold just by uh, applying those proper cooking techniques and not having the the stigma of it being one way or the other, I just want people to come out and get really good food. And, you know, we, we just unleashed our holiday menu for um, the Christmas season. And we had a whole holiday menu for the Thanksgiving season as well. And it's really just about replicating or not even replicating, just accomplishing the same things that we've always known, the things that sort of pull those heartstrings around the table. I'm a sides guy. I, I grew up that way. I could have always, when I was a child, cared less about the giant turkey on the table. I wanted the mashed potatoes. I wanted the house-made cranberry. I wanted the stuffing. So, you know, green bean casserole, all that stuff. I want 800 things on my plate. And to be blunt, the turkey always just took up too much space (laughs) for for the (laughs) cornucopia of flavors that I was looking for at that one epic meal. So, um, you know, in, in the idea of putting meat into almost everything that we eat is, is a very modern and Western approach to cooking. We, we have thousands of years of human history that, that breaks free of that almost instantly. So it's, it's a very easy thing to require and it doesn't require any kind of special skill set. You just uh, approach the proper ingredients with the correct technique and, and bingo, bingo. You've got some healthy, hopefully relatively low cholesterol, low caloric things for the holidays that everyone's gonna be happy about. And talking about the turkey taking up too much room, I mean, it also takes up a lot of room in the fridge after the event, right? I mean, there's there's always this this kind of conundrum of what do we do with all these leftovers after Thanksgiving? And do you not have that same issue if you're cooking a plant-based festive meal? Uh, no, we still have that issue. We have a, a fridge full of mashed potatoes and green bean casserole and all those other things. And we, we accomplish the same scenario the next day. Uh, it's just a different approach on it. You know, we just don't have that main uh, protein, which I mean, I, I, to me, the, the, the idea of, you know, like, what do we serve these like 40 pound turkeys or something like that these days? I mean, they're, they're, they're completely not referencing the original take on the Christmas goose or anything. It's just these large GMO um, anomalies that we slap on the table and spend eight hours preparing for what? It doesn't make any sense. So your return on investment emotionally and physically, I think is better vested in creating those sides and in vegetarian wise. Fires, does the notion of a, of a giant turkey or something to kind of like feast, not just on in terms of food, but also feast your eyes on. Is that sometimes something that people have to try and get past if they're thinking, okay, I'm not going to do a, a meat based festive meal this year. 
Well, I think a lot of us eat with our eyes and for some, for many, you know, seeing that, uh, seeing that lovely roasted turkey with that, with that, uh, with that skin, you know, glistening on a table, you know, it's, it's very appealing, but to Sean's point, there are restaurants in town that are um, a new standard, the new standard in Winter Park comes to mind, uh, that are just offering the sides. They're not, you know, for, for holiday to go meals. So um, I think there is something you've said to, to Sean's point where all the fixings, all the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the side dishes that, uh, that surround that, you know, the traditional main meat course are, are arguably more appealing than, than the main course itself, you know, and especially once you slice in that turkey, start eating it, you're like, you know what, I can't just eat turkey by itself. I need other stuff to, you know, to, uh, to make, to make it, uh, to make it a little more palatable and, and tasty. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think, I think that's certainly the case. For a, a restaurant reviewer, Fires, or somebody who's been kind of following the industry in Orlando for a long time, I guess 2020 is a pretty unusual year for this industry, particularly a lot of businesses in, in general. Um, what are you seeing that's different about this year? And, and is there maybe an opportunity for for restaurants that are offering something a little bit different anyway whether it's um you know a, a different take on festive food or or um something that isn't focused on the uh, the turkey or, or other kind of meat-based food well certainly there's been a concerted effort and a focus on the takeout experience and it's not just uh it's not just the food itself it's the it's it's the whole experience the the you know the, the act of driving up and whether you're getting curbside or whether you're going into the restaurants uh uh, uh the uh, uh you know the packaging the you know like everything uh you know little notes they may leave on the box and so there, there, there's been like a real focus on that and and as far as the, the, the holiday meals are concerned I think we are starting to see a lot more variety, uh, a lot more uh, uh, options for, for the for you know for diverse diners, um, and and we're we're even seeing that with vegetarian to go holiday meals, which is something that I don't really recall seeing in the past. You know, there's uh, Russell's on Lake Ivanhoe offering dedicated. Uh, veg only holiday to go meals, and and that's something I think that's relatively new. Mm-hmm. Are restaurants still offering rolls of toilet paper and other enticements to get people out to them? You know, I think that exper- I think that was an experiment. I mean, you know, the so you know the so-called pivot that uh, that occurred back in March, April. Uh, restaurants were trying to do anything and everything just to stay alive and, and and stay above water. And but you know, as we all know, and Sean and Hari can attest to this, restaurants aren't grocery stores. Restaurants can't survive on takeout alone. Uh, restaurants are restaurants. They're more than just a place to go eat. You know, there, there, there's a social aspect to it. There's a community aspect to it. So, um, as you know, I, I haven't seen um, that many restaurants now offering toilet paper and toothbrushes and you know, anti antibacterials and, and and stuff like that. But that was that was something that they um, that they experimented with and had to just to again just to survive. Mm-hmm. Harry, what was the experience of Chris during the the start of the pandemic, at least? I mean, did you guys have to shut down at all? So we've not had to shut down. We have not shut down at all. Uh, But, you know, as I mentioned, I've kind of stepped away from everyday operations at the restaurant. I kind of Mm -hmm. had my last full-time experience uh, probably in March of this year uh, and quickly got to the case of writing the book. But 
I, my last words, if you will, to Tom and the kitchen staff was essentially, hey, I'm here always. Uh, I know what's going on. I know what food you're putting out. I can tell. I know what menus you're putting out. I know who you're sourcing your food from. My advice to you would simply be to do what you do well, still well, and then, um, you know, trim down the waste and um, advertise differently and uh, maybe work on the costs a little bit so that the guests don't feel like they're missing out on the community aspect and the dining aspect, but they're being charged the same amount still. Mm -hmm. So ultimately it's a numbers game as, as Sean can attest to as well. Uh, you know, you look at, look at where the numbers are and you figure out, Hey, I'm not going to revenue as much this week, but if I can keep my profit percentage roughly the same, I might be doing okay. Is Chris the, the final stop in terms of a restaurant for yourself? Or do you, do you think there might be others, other ventures in the future for yourself, Harry? Uh, I sure hope there are. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I would not open one in Delan unless something changed. Uh, I would be interested in, in being a, an opening chef or a consulting chef of some kind in any restaurant outside of Delan. There's nothing wrong with Delan. I feel like I've left my mark in Delan and the thought of opening up a uh, a curry in a hurry shack next to Crest doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, <laughs> but um, I would definitely be interested in, in being a, um, a practicing culinarian again in the near future. Uh, in, in some sense, the pandemic has been, uh, if there's any silver lining, the timing of all of this um, is in conjunction with my own timing of trying to step away from that grind that I had for so long. Mm -hmm. But I've been recharged in some ways this year. Um, and so next year, if things get to be somewhat normal, uh, I would love to be on board with something that has to do with the restaurant again. If you're just joining us, uh, we're speaking with Sean Noonan, Hari Pulaparka, and Fires Kara about the festive season, holiday meals, uh, with a focus on vegetarian food. Um, Hari, uh, yeah, and we've talked about this before too, like you know the, the holidays, whether it's um, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, New Year. I mean, that's like food is like a focal point for celebration, right? Things are a little different this year. What does your kind of festive season look like, and and is food playing as central a role as it, it normally would? Absolutely. Food has because we're cooking more at home and uh, obviously, and uh, that's actually why I wrote the book and had a sense of urgency to it because I wanted to promote, you know, the use of more uh, vegetarian cooking at home. Um, so it, it, that's all we got left, right, actually, is the ability to celebrate at home around food still and with the people who we care about and love and are able to be around. Uh, I mean, what else is there, frankly, these days? So if anything, that's been accented and kind of enhanced even more so, if you ask me, uh, to be thankful for everything, to have all of those, you know, sense of that, that all, all that sense of gratitude and appreciation for the fact that we're still around uh, and around food, to do that around food uh, at a table, at a holiday table or just everyday table, I think is even more relevant in this day. And in fact, that's what's kept a lot of people going, the, the notion of they're still able to, still able to break bread you know, in, in ways that, that make sense uh, and that's meaningful, more meaningful than before, perhaps. We perhaps took it for granted for a long time and all of a sudden we're, we're not taking that much of that for granted. So I, I feel like nothing has changed in terms of a recipe or a specific dish, but I feel like food has become more meaningful uh, than, uh, than before. So mm -hmm. it's even more important, I think, to leverage that, forgive that 
a cliche reference to leverage that to make our food system more better and, and more more better blues, you know, more sustainable and all that kind of stuff. Sean, just thinking about sides, I mean, that, that seems to lend itself uh, pretty well to people doing takeout, right? And, and I wonder if that has uh, kind of changed your approach to what you normally might offer for a holiday and, and what you're offering this year in 2020. Absolutely. Uh, we, in prior years, had had holiday meals on site. We wanted to, you know, I, I was raised in the culinary world by chefs that told me that it was my responsibility and a, and a great honor and privilege to cook for people on Thanksgiving and to cook for people on Christmas Eve. I mean, when families choose you as that moment to sort of enforce their own uh, family culture or their own rituals, I, I couldn't be happier. That, that's literally the apex of why we do what we do. So, you know, and we were by no means anticipating an international pandemic when we went cruising into 2020 this year. But, you know, quickly I sort of realized that, you know, people in the hospitality industry, we're, I hate to, I don't want to downsize the, the gravity of what we're all dealing with right now, but we're built for insane moments like this, and especially Floridians. I mean, we can't go swimming without an alligator trying to kill us. There's a hurricane that tries to wipe us off the map three times a year. We're built for this kind of moment. And so I took it as a real opportunity for all of our staff to really shine and you know the pivot that we all talk about because we as restaurateurs have a responsibility to sort of play a small role in the maintenance of normalcy so that we can, as a culture and a society, get through this together. If all the restaurants shut down and you weren't able to satiate that warming feeling of whatever dish that you personally attract to, that's just another level of stress that eventually sort of deteriorates and cracks this, the fabric that we're trying to maintain right now. So when the holidays came about, it was no doubt we were going to do something for everybody that wanted something. And so we chose to go the sides route because, you know, again, I like my family dinner to sort of almost represent all the, the, the colors, cultures, textures, everything that we sort of know of as being Americans. That's how we build our corporate structures. You know, we want diversity. That's how we see everybody on the streets. We have all kinds of people from all walks and wakes of life, especially in Orlando. So that's where we sort of went. I know I'm going probably too deep into why I like sides, but to me, it's, it's again, it's that rainbow and cornucopia of what gets spread upon the entire plate and the entire giant banquet table that you've got at your house that sort of just drives home those holiday feels, all those different colors that are bright and shiny. And I think we can replicate all those things with a vegetarian approach. No problem. It's easy breezy with just the right ingredients and technique. Well, I want to ask you, all of you are a two-parter and I'll start with you, Sean. Uh, what is one thing you're looking forward to most from the realm of vegetarian food uh, for Christmas, for this holiday? Like what's my vegetarian wish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, my vegetarian wish is that people would stop trying to replicate things that cannot be replicated vegetarian. You cannot have a vegan filet mignon. So let's just stop trying. Let's let's just pivot away from that and just, you know, again, we have cultures that are thousands of years old that have done vegetarian and vegan food much better than we're currently doing it forever. We don't need to replicate these things. Just enjoy the actual ingredients on the table. If you have solid ingredients and you're using even the basics of solid techniques, your food's going to taste delicious. 
So that that would be my thing. Mm-hmm. And then, what are you looking for in twenty twenty one? Like, what do you think next year holds? Hopefully, something a little better from a business and uh, global health perspective than twenty twenty. I am I am hoping for the uh, best of health for us as a nation, and I wish hope that this thing's done and over with realistically by the end of Q1, maybe Q2. I'd really like to enjoy what I guess I'm referring to as a normal summer by, by 2021. Um, and then, you know, the business benefits of those as well. And, uh, you know, we really look forward to getting out of these positions because one of the first things that we're going to do is pivot and try to help recover some of the people that weren't able to get through in such a uh, an upper level of, of success. You know, there's a lot of restaurants out there that need some severe help right now. And unfortunately, everybody's so tied in and making sure our own ships aren't sinking that we're not really able to help out the community. So that's our first pivot after that is as soon as we're sort of in the clear, we're going to start seeing who in the local community needs a hand for all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Fires, Cara, what is your vegetarian wish for the holidays? Or what, what do you want to see on your plate this well, year? Well, um, I know, I know I'm going to be uh, uh, supporting those restaurants. We did so for ha- uh, for Halloween, for Thanksgiving. And for Christmas, I'm thinking of doing the same. I, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a meat auction. I know this is a, a, a show focusing on vegetarian food, but, but, but to uh, Sean's point about this rainbow coalition of holiday meals, you know, we, uh, if we, if we do have one or two people over, you know, I like to provide a nice variety, uh, you know, for those who are meat eaters and for those who, uh, you know, prefer a meatless option. So I, you know, during holidays, I like to support restaurants, especially now, uh, get, get a takeout meal from them, takes the pressure off of me to cook, you know, and because uh, that's uh, usually an all day sort of thing. So if I can just get a great meal from a restaurant, support the restaurant and keep everyone at home happy, then uh, that's uh, that's a wish fulfilled for me. For 2021, I mean, what do you kind of hope for? What, what do you think the landscape is going to look like? I'm hoping for, you know, a return to normalcy, but I think there'll still be a focus on uh, you know, sanitary conditions and, and, you know, the various uh, protocols that have been instituted uh, during the pandemic. I think people will still uh, be very cognizant of that, very conscious of it. So um, I'm hoping to a relative, hoping for a relative return to normalcy where we can, again, gather inside restaurants and enjoy all the aspects that, uh, that you know, that, that restaurants give, give us. Harry Pulapaka, what is your vegetarian wish for the holidays so it would depend on who i'm with of course but uh i I expect it to be with my in-laws and jennifer and me just the four of us you know it's actually this is a good test for me always because jennifer's parents are 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 not young anymore and her father is uh almost 90 years old um and her mother is almost 80 years old and then jennifer and i eat you know in your face punchy spicy in your face kind of food uh, so if I'm usually the one cooking, and it's, it's actually a good test uh, of me as a chef when I can make everyone happy without Jennifer reaching for the hot sauce or, or my in-laws reaching for the water. Um, so my wish is to, you know, have another great meal and put my chef hat on and, and, and make Italian food because that's what they want. Uh, but but I, I, I've always said this, uh, that there's all, we all have some Italian in us, I think, and I like to think I do as well. So... Uh, I love uh, making Italian food, and that's what I'm going to make for my family. So my wish is that they'll be happy with the meal I, meal I make for them. 
mm-hmm. and then beyond that, I'm hoping to record a, a, t- a demo or two for the for the public at large so that I can inspire them to cook more thoughtfully and deliciously at home. And I'll, sh- of course, share that shamelessly as I always do. <laughs> and, and what about 2021? What are you kind of looking forward to or hoping for in 2021? Yeah, actually, your question earlier kind of is, is a good one to come back to. I'm hoping to be back in the restaurant business, if you will, and uh, be a chef, or at least not necessarily a full-time grinding kind of line cook chef, because there's nothing wrong with that. And that's where I get my jollies from. But, but you know, I've aged a little bit and I've got a little bit of wrist injury that I'm nursing. So but I'm hoping to put my mind to, to, the, to the behind the scenes and maybe even the front of the scenes of a restaurant somewhere that makes sense. I'm not looking actively, but should the right opportunity come along, I would be all over it. And then, of course, I'm going to write my third book. Uh, kind of hinted about it as already. It's going to be focused on not vegetarian only, but there'll be a component in there that's vegetarian, but it's focused on creating great flavor while reducing waste. So, you know, max, a maximum flavor, maximum taste, minimum waste is the tentative subtitle, but it's from the Dreaming and Spice series. Um, and so it speaks to a different side of what I care about food, which is that uh, we shouldn't waste as much. And so if I can inspire people to waste less, but still not give up on flavor in the slightest bit, then I feel like that book will, will have done its job. Hari Pula Parker is an associate professor of mathematics at Stetson University in Deland. He's also the founder of the Global Cooking School. Hari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Also joined by Fires Kara. He is the Orlando Weekly's restaurant critic. Fires, thanks as always. Thank you, Matt. And Sean Noonan, who's the owner of the Harp and Cork Southern Hospitality Group, which includes, among others, uh, Dharma Fine Vittles. Sean, thank you as well. Thank you, Matthew. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. Still to come, Orlando-based Limitless Solutions continues its mission to reimagine the world of prosthetic limbs. We'll talk to the president and CEO, Albert Monero, as when intersection returns. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. What does Cyberpunk 2077, the much-hyped video game that features the voice of Keanu Reeves, have to do with Orlando-based prosthetic limb maker Limitless Solutions? Reeves' character is the model for the new prosthetic arm from Limitless Solutions. The company is continuing its tradition of designs inspired by fictional characters, although unlike the Iron Man limit rolled out before, these new prosthetic arms are for adults. I talked to Limitless CEO and President Albert Monero about the company's new products and his plans for 2021. Well, Albert Monero, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you've got uh, a new partnership uh, with Limitless Solutions. Just explain a little bit what you're doing. Like, what, what is the next kind of iteration for this company? We just launched two partnerships in the last week with uh, the Cyberpunk 2077 video game and the Assassin's Creed video game franchise series. And it has been incredible to be able to add these new designs into our catalog of arms, and both of which will become available as Limitless looks to expand to include adults uh, with a focus on veterans and first responders in 2021. So talk a little bit, if you could, about how this partnership uh, with these video game companies came about. Over the last several years, we've been developing these partnerships with video game companies um, to be able to include what their characters' arms look like in real life for our uh, bionic bionic family. Mm -hmm. For Limitless, our goal has been to be able to include the same amount of expression that we've been able to do for children using the arms 
now for adults as well as we look to launch that partnership. And we thought that these two partners really um, helped us be able to do that with with full expression and creativity. You know, one of the things I think that really captured the imagination of people with your company a little while ago was that tie-in you had uh, with Robert Downey Jr. making a cameo as Iron Man. And that really got pe- caught people's eye, right? So is it the same... Are you sort of using the same kind of idea there to to put the arm out there and, and embed it in popular culture and, and thereby more people are going to know about it? Uh, that's been our ethos for how we approach designing a bionic arm. We want it to be expressive and creative and based on characters that, that people really enjoy and then subsequently will want to identify with as part of their bionic arm. And these two new designs really capture that well with uh, cyberpunk capturing kind of... Um, Johnny Silverhand, which is, uh, you know, voice acted and played by Keanu Reeves. And then in the Assassin's Creed franchise, really capturing that, um, that Greek armor that Cassandra wears and kind of showing kind of that, that development of the metallic design. Have you reached out to Keanu Reeves to see if he might, he might do something with the arm? Oh, well, we can't talk about that just yet, but we're, we're, we definitely are are hopeful um, that he was able to see it and, uh, We'll be excited if he if he shares anything. So, I mean, uh, it, it seems to me like part of what you're doing is you're kind of flipping the idea of disability on its head with this, right? You're sort of designing something which is a cool product and kind of has a an element of, you know, people want to get their hands on it. So is that behind it as well, just trying to subvert this notion of disability and I guess make it a little more everyday for people to be using a, a limb like the limitless uh, arms that you manufacture? We really believe that bionics can be expressive, fully functional, and and really artistically beautiful. And so our design has always been focused around building in that expression as opposed to making it look more human realistic. Um, and so we think if you have that opportunity to build out an, an armored bionic arm or a, a character from your favorite video game, um, we think people will really like that. And, and that's our hope for moving forward into 2021 as we expand the program. And this is good timing too, right? Because no doubt some people will be getting uh, maybe a little old for stockings for, for this, but they'll be getting uh, their hands on some of those video games for Christmas. Uh, is, does that sort of give you a bit of a boost as well? Yeah, we're really hopeful that the Bionic Arms capture people's creativity. And when you get to see a new game get launched and then know that that can also be a Bionic Arm, I think from the accessibility community, that's bringing that front and center. And that's our hope is to really advocate for and the stigma around prosthetics and, and making them into something that that is really exciting to use. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Albert Monero, who's the president of Limitless Solutions. We're talking about the new iteration of the Bionic. Um, talk to me about what you're hoping to do next. So, so you're, you're moving into the the sphere of uh, limbs for adults. Is this a, a magnitude of like a, a different kind of uh, level of engineering you have to do there because it's it's bigger and are you looking for different kinds of use for these arms for 2021 limitless is really hoping to push the envelope on what we can do with our designs and being able to expand into that space to include adults with a focus on veterans and first responders um, is really giving us a different way to look at the arm as in in that design phase and it's still it's still early, so the design is still is still kind of being worked out for what those differences are ultimately going to to be finalized at. Um, but we're really excited, and the opportunity to move into our new our new facility um, in the springtime is is definitely giving us a platform to be able to grow.
Mm-hmm. And where's that new facility? Our new facility is right on the edge of Research Park, and we're hoping to be able to start some renovations um, in January and then be able to push towards uh, moving in all of our equipment and getting things started by the end of spring. Is it bigger than where you've been working out of for now? Yes, uh, about three times the size of our, our current space, and that we're really looking forward to leveraging uh, kind of a dedicated manufacturing and paint space to be able to, to scale our work and improve it. Is the goal long-term to keep manufacturing here in central Florida, or do you, do you foresee maybe like a system where you, where you might have parts made elsewhere in the country or, or even offshore? We definitely are focused on being able to make small batches of prototypes uh, from start to finish here in our lab, and that's been kind of the focus of our equipment um, as we look long-term, as this program scales, there's definitely a component of, of how you work with outside partners to be able to produce subcomponents. We kind of anticipate all those subcomponents coming together in our facility, um, getting that stamp of quality, and then, and then being shipped to the hospital or providers. And then I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you work with, uh, you know, in the case of the arms you've been building up until now, like the kids who'd be using them, and then and then I guess as you roll out these new iterations, like the, the first responders, I mean, what, what sort of level of consultancy do you need from the people who are actually going to be using the limbs? Having the user voice involved in the design phase and in the iteration phase is so important. And that's what we've been learning from our first clinical trial with the Bionic Kids. And um, we're excited for being able to launch that same idea with, um, with adults and starting with a small pilot program um, get that feedback, be able to really tailor it to them and then scale up from there. And uh, there's a pretty big veteran population in central Florida. I mean, Florida in general, of course, we have a big population anyway. But it, was that sort of part of the rationale for saying this is who we're going to be making these for? I think there's really great synergy just being in Orlando and central Florida as a focus on, on taking care of our, our veteran and first responder populations. Um, and Limitless is, is definitely excited to be able to grow into that, that part of our program um, and be able to support them. One thing I was talking about with a, another uh, CEO of a tech company, TechFit Digital Surgery, was just this idea that the, the pandemic has kind of turbocharged a little bit of innovation in some ways. Have you seen something similar with, with what you're working on? Like, have you been forced to innovate a little bit just because of the restrictions of the pandemic? One of the challenges during the pandemic has been our clinical engagement with our bionic kids has been moved to kind of a telehealth or telemedicine approach. And that that takes a lot more planning and energy. Um, but I think that that has forced us to focus and innovate differently, um, which is ultimately going to help us scale as, as we go in, and increase the, the production. From a design phase, I think right now we are seeing huge changes in the tech industry because of the restrictions that have been kind of put on our world right now and also how people are thinking. I think it's changed everything and it's made us really go back to the drawing board um, and build up from there. Were you faced with any any kind of challenges in getting your hands on raw materials? We definitely observed the global supply change challenges over the past six months, uh, nine months, and it has been kind of like a, a rolling effect. So electronics, resins, plastics, and they've all kind of gone through different phases of unavailability, availability, and um, just kind of difficult to procure. And, and that has been a challenge for a young tech startup um, as we try to, we, we purchase things on much smaller scales than potentially like a large manufacturer or car, car company. 
Um, and they did definitely difficult um, and something we're, we're working to overcome and we're having to really be strategic about what parts we put into the design and based on what's available. When you look at the arms that you have, you know, in production now and compare that to the very first model you, you, you designed and produced, like how, how different is it? How stark is that difference? It's been an incredible journey for the last six years uh, developing the arms and, and our team has pushed the technology so much further than I thought it, it could ever go. I'm really grateful when we, when we look back and we see kind of the first arm till now, how much progress has been made. Like, are they still usable? Is the, is the plastic tough enough that it would have, an arm would have lasted for like six years? Or would you have to replace a few parts? I think the, the arm is designed to be modular and be able to replace parts as, um, as time goes on. And whether that's resizing or just de- degradation of the part um, over time and use. Um, and so we've been continuing to kind of like push that forward. Um, and that's one of the benefits of 3D printing is that you can really rapidly customize and, and tailor and I wonder too, I mean, this may be a bit further out, but are you, are you thinking about other prosthetics besides arms? Our second project has been what we call Project Xavier and just finished up a pilot clinical trial at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And it's a face gesture driven wheelchair for ALS patients who can't use joysticks to control their, their vehicle. Well, that's pretty exciting. And if, like, has that been a trial where you've you've been able to work with, with uh, patients with ALS as well? That's correct. Um, so Dr. Bjorn Oscarsson is from the ALS Research Center at Mayo Clinic. Um, and we ran a clinical trial with, with four patients and are in the process of uh, analyzing the data and then hoping to publish it in a neurology journal in 2021. Okay, so you've got quite a lot on your plate for 2021. And I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, the fact that you're moving into a new facility, it's bigger you must feel fairly confident, notwithstanding all the challenges of the pandemic and, and kind of where businesses are generally. You must be feeling fairly confident about the future of limitless solutions and what you're doing in that space in the industry in general. Our entire world has felt the stress and the frustration over the last nine months. Um, and what we've learned and talked about here in our, on our team is, is how, do you, how do you overcome that? And we've been able to really push towards innovation and kind of seeing what's on the horizon in 2021. And that's what we're chasing. And there's still a lot of things that need to be worked out um, as the, you know, our state and our, our world goes through the, the next phase of the, of the pandemic challenge. Um, but we're hopeful. And I think that that hope is contagious. Um, and that's what we want to be championing here um, in Orlando. We've been speaking with Albert Monero. He is the president of Limitless Solutions, talking about the new bionic arm they're working on and other projects. Albert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Still to come, Chloe Hogan grew up in Orlando, and this year she hit the biggest stage of her life, competing on NBC's The Voice. We'll listen back to an interview with Hogan about singing during the pandemic. Intersections back in a minute. It's like cherry wine, sending shivers This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. This year, singer-songwriter Chloe Hogan found herself on the biggest stage of her career so far, making it to the knockout round of NBC's The Voice. Hogan is a graduate of Dr. Phillips High School in Orlando. She's currently studying at Belmont University in Nashville. And last year, Hogan was one of WMFE's local favourites for the NPR Tiny Desk Contest. Here she is performing Lips Like Cherry Wine live at the Abbey in Orlando. Oh, and I fall in love too easily, but I can't let go. 
caught up with Hogan back in November. She talked about the challenge of competing and singing without an audience because of the pandemic. Is there part of you that wishes that it could be just a regular season without this pandemic looming <laughs> in the background and, you know, have the, the audience just going crazy right. without sort of worrying about the disease? <laughs> right. Um, absolutely. I think there's always the element you think about, man, I wish, because any true, I think, performer feeds off of the energy of other human beings. And um, it's different to not have physical people like filling up the space when we're performing, but there's a magic to watching and knowing that people are watching from all around the world, watching these performances, and we can feel their their warmth, their, their comforting, their love, their support, their encouragement from wherever they're watching from. So yes, in that sense, I miss the audiences. I miss the, and the cheers and the, you know, emotion that fills up the room, the heart. But at the same time, it's a blessing that we get to be here anyhow. So I'll take it as it comes to me. And is it something, is it a little bit like recording an album for you or being in the studio as opposed to being on stage and and having that sort of live feel? Or is it a bit of a combination of both those experiences? I hadn't actually had that question asked before and Honestly, I believe that's probably the most accurate description of what that feels like. You're in there and it does feel like you're recording an album because it's very intimate because there's not a lot of people. But at the same time, you're you're performing for one of the biggest shows, <laughs> singing shows on the planet. So there's that element too. But I don't know. I wouldn't I think this is a very unique experience that uh, I hope only a few seasons have to go through in that the difficulty of the process where it's like the health, the health and safety issue and, you know, this whole pandemic. But this is a very intimate and very, I would say, exclusive feeling of just being here and being almost one on one with the coaches because there's no one else in the room. It feels like they're talking their entire attention is completely on you so that that makes it so much better it's refreshing when we met you um last year as part of your performance for the npr's tiny disc concert and then the uh, sort of local favorites selection for wmfe you had a really large band with you um and it seemed to me that you just had a really good rapport with that band you really kind of fed off each other's energy um do you sort of feel like you've got them there with you in spirit as you're going through this competition Oh, absolutely. Um, my friends, I call them the dream team. Every single time we perform together, it feels like a dream. Um, they come with me wherever I go. And I think the thing that I've been saying throughout this time that I've had on the show um, has been whenever one of us begin to rise or have the opportunity to do something great and we start climbing somewhere, our responsibility as musicians and as friends is to pull each other up with us and support everybody that, you know, is a part of our journey. So everyone that has been a part of my musical journey, everybody that I've touched and that everybody that has touched has been a part of my life. They all 
are coming up with me. So all of my friends that you saw in that show, all the people that weren't able to be there that are usually a part of my band, they're all with me in spirit every single time I go up on that stage or I go to a rehearsal or I'm going to some cool little, you know, I don't know, band practice or a meet. It's, it's a group thing. It's a collective. So it's a collective effort. Where do you sort of feel like you are in your musical journey now compared to, you know, 18 months ago? I don't even know. This past year has been externally very difficult, internally as well. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like this year has been, metaphorically speaking, a flower that grows through the concrete. It's just been a rough year, but somehow beautiful things have still been birthed and grown out of that. So 18 months ago, I couldn't have ever imagined that I would be here on The Voice in the live playoffs. That seems like a very outlandish um, dream. But one thing that this year has taught me is that if you believe you can do it and you have the work ethic to actually put put like you know put your work in it and put your foot in it <laughs> as what my grandma would say then you can achieve anything that you want to achieve because out of everything that's happened in this year especially with covid if a girl from orlando a little girl from orlando can still be on the voice and pursue her dream you can do anything you set your mind to so 18 months ago i would have never imagined but with God, all things are possible, and I'm here. So, I feel like a lot of people have been yearning for just some kind of entertainment to take them out of the, you know, the the situation, the pandemic, and worrying about the future. You know, whether it's the, the virus itself, or whether it's the kind of economic downturn, political strife, anything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you feel kind of good that you're contributing to something that can take people out of that that you know moment of of turmoil this year? Yes, I feel this is what I was put on this earth to do, to be refreshing, to be that calm and comforting, entertaining spirit that people need when they feel down. Um, A lot of things happened in this year, as you said, and as we've spoken about, but that's what music is for. It's to uplift and to share an emotion and struggle and in strife. And then to bring us forward, um, music just seems to be that thing that keeps us moving. And so if I can help be a part of that and be, you know, something that brings someone through um, a sad day or a sad week or a sad year and make it brighter, then that's all I would ever ask for. From watching the show, you you seem very grounded. I mean, a lot of the performers, to be honest, seem to have their feet on the ground. Even though obviously it's a it's a big stage to be on. What it what is. keeps you centered and grounded as you move through this? It's it's a God thing. I'm so I'm centered in the Word of Jesus Christ and knowing that god has me and that he the only reason and the only way that i could be here is through his goodness and his plan and his mercy and his grace over my life there's nothing else 
that could have possibly gotten me through this year in one piece and on the voice, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> there's just nothing else. Obviously, you're kind of focused on the next step for this particular competition, but thinking beyond that, is it back to Nashville and the the kind of hard work that goes on there, forging your career? Mm-hmm. I am still in school. In fact, <laughs> on one rehearsal day for um, for the show, I was I woke up at the crack of dawn, finished my finals for school. And then went to um, band rehearsals. So just to give you an idea of the crazy world that I'm living in is that I still have school. I'm a junior in um, Mm -hmm. college at Belmont University. So life resumes and goes back to Nashville afterwards. And I just want to keep on pushing and going shooting for the stars in Nashville with my friends, my colleagues, and see what other opportunities come towards me um, and what opportunities I can make for myself in Nashville. And then we'll see where God takes us next. It could be LA, New York, Paris, Tokyo. I don't care where you take me, but I just want to do music wherever I'm at. So, Do you think you'll be back in Orlando at some point? Oh yeah. My family's in Orlando. So Orlando's home. I, I have to go back to Orlando. Um, that's, that's, love and stomping grounds so when it comes to Orlando the thing is is that it's not the reason why I moved to Nashville was because I needed a place where like the heart of the city was music but the heart of Orlando was home it's just Mm -hmm. family so that's always where I come back to if I'm going anywhere I'm coming right back to Orlando just to see my family That was Chloe Hogan, the singer-songwriter from Orlando, was one of the contestants on NBC's The Voice. That interview was recorded in November. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 